Nearly a year after Russia invaded Ukraine, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin weighs in. As Ukraine uh, works to hold its ground, it's also building combat power. It's Wednesday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the Biden administration is concerned that China might give Russia support for its war in Ukraine. Russia being weakened basically means the team is weakened. And if Russia is defeated, then China becomes the next target. Also, NPR says it must lay off 10 percent of its workforce to address a budget shortfall. And we'll get the story on the data that the Kroger grocery chain collects about customers in its loyalty program. It's 401 First. This news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A bitter cold and icy winter storm is bringing sections of the United States to a standstill. Here's NPR's Kristen Wright. Multiple feet of snow and thick ice could accumulate to dangerous levels in areas of the Plains and Midwest. The Minnesota National Guard is on standby. National Weather Service meteorologist Frank Pereira says the state could be in for a storm of historic proportions, even by Minnesota standards. We could be looking at the potential for potentially life-threatening travel conditions across that area with some damage to infrastructure as well. Snow and cold are also anticipated to disrupt parts of the northeast and even southern California. And in a twist, temperatures could rise into the 70s and 80s in the Mid-Atlantic and Ohio Valley. Kristen Wright, NPR News. President Biden is on his way back to the U.S. following a pivotal trip to Poland and Ukraine. NPR's Asma Khalid with details. Biden met with the leaders of the Bucharest Nine before flying home. This is a group of countries on the eastern flank of NATO that banded together in 2015 following Russia's annexation of Crimea the year prior. As NATO's eastern flank, you're on the front lines of our collective defense. And you know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict. Biden spoke about the strength of NATO in the face of Russian aggression. Separately, when Biden was asked about Russian President Vladimir Putin's move to suspend participation in the last remaining nuclear weapons treaty between the U.S. and Russia, he called it a big mistake. Asma Khalid, NPR News. As Biden traveled back from Poland, former President Donald Trump, who's running for office again, visited the Ohio village of East Palestine, site of the train derailment that has sparked toxic chemical safety concerns among residents. But Republican Ohio Governor Mike DeWine notes railroad safety is not a partisan issue. Trains going through your community, uh, my community, anybody's community, we have a right to, to know that uh, the, the, the modern safety measures are being used. Federal health officials say so far they have not detected dangerous levels of toxins in the affected area. Palestinian officials say at least 10 Palestinians were killed in Nablus in the occupied West Bank today during a rare daytime raid by Israeli troops. Aaron Boxerman reports from Jerusalem. Israeli troops entered Nablus's crowded old city to counter what the Israeli military said was an imminent threat by Palestinian militants. The military said it killed at least three suspected militants over four hours. According to Palestinian health officials, the raid also left a 72-year-old man and a 16-year-old dead, among others, and wounded over 100. The Palestinian Authority condemned the raid and demanded that the United States intervene to restrain Israeli actions. There has been a surge in Israeli raids over the past several months, following attacks in Israel last year, often leaving militants and civilians dead. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Boxerman. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Some critics have compared Boston unfavorably to other major metropolitan areas, such as New York and Miami, calling Boston the city that always sleeps. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports Boston is hiring a new director for nightlife economy to push that bedtime back a bit. Mayor Michelle Wu says a vibrant nightlife is key to a healthy economy. She's tapped Corrine Reynolds from the Boston Foundation to come up with ideas to keep people up later. Reynolds says people don't have many options now for staying out past midnight. There needs to be more than bars. There, I love that the city prides itself on its sports and its, and its pubs, but what else do we have to offer? Reynolds says she wants to support more events like the popular new Little Saigon Night Market in Dorchester. The city plans to start with a focus on downtown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Newly released court documents suggest the largest drug lab scandal in U.S. history may become even larger. The documents indicate that misconduct at the now-closed Hinton Drug Lab in Jamaica Plain was more widespread than state officials have acknowledged. A defense attorney is asking for a federal investigation. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. State officials have long maintained that only former chemist Annie Dukon falsified drug tests before her conviction a decade ago. But the new court documents identify at least four other Hinton Lab employees who may have also engaged in misconduct. Defense Attorney Greg Batten has asked U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins to look into possible charges against former state officials, including the Inspector General, former Attorney General Martha Coakley, and former AG, now Governor Maura Healey. Without that investigation, I don't know where the criminal justice system stands at this point in time. Batten says the courts should toss out more convictions than the tens of thousands that were already vacated because of the scandal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. In the forecast, some wintry weather is arriving. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce expects roads to get slippery. A little bit of everything out there. Snow continues to fill in and ramp up with the rain snow line making slow northward progress. In between, it's areas of sleet and freezing rain mixing in too. This wintry mix will continue overnight into tomorrow morning, which will slow things down for the morning commute. Snow totals, coating possible on the Cape, an inch or two for the South Shore, Boston, and surrounding suburbs. But north of the city, into southern New Hampshire, it's two to four inches. Light freezing drizzle is going to make travel slick through tomorrow into early Friday, especially north and west of town. Friday, colder air arrives and we won't get out of the 20s on Saturday with the chance of snow showers this weekend. It's 43 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. When President Joe Biden made a secret visit to Ukraine this week, he recalled a grim prediction. One year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kiev. Seems like a lot longer ago than a year, but think back to that year. Perhaps even the end of Ukraine. Some U.S. intelligence officials were also privately making that prediction. Now, the Biden administration has doubled down on its commitment to help Ukraine resist Russian forces. So nearly a year into this war, how might it come to an end? Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin joins us from the Pentagon to talk about that. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us. 
Thanks, Ari. Great to be here. Let's start with that visit President Biden made to Ukraine. He committed nearly half a billion dollars in additional military aid. You also visited last week with Ukrainian soldiers who were trained by U.S. forces in Germany. Do you expect this support to dramatically change the situation on the battlefield? Are we about to see Ukraine make major advances? We uh, would certainly hope that they'll be able to achieve uh, their objectives, their tactical and operational objectives. Our goal, Ari, is to put them in the best uh, possible position to do that. Uh, You've uh, heard the president say a number of times that uh, we're going to continue to support uh, Ukraine uh, and provide them the the means to uh, protect their sovereign territory for uh, as long as it takes. The kinds of things that we're providing, Bradley uh, fighting vehicles, strikers, which is also an infantry fighting vehicle, Our allies and partners are also stepping up to the plate. Germany's providing martyrs. Uh, Sweden is providing a CV-90, which is an infantry fighting vehicle as well, and the list goes on. So we're not only providing platforms, we're also providing training uh, on those platforms and training on combined arms maneuver, which I think will make a significant difference. If if the goal, though, is to put Ukraine in the best possible position to achieve its military goals, as you say, then why not grant their requests for longer-range artillery, for F-16 planes, for some of the other things they've asked for that the U.S. has said no to? Again, their most pressing need right now is uh, air defense capability uh, and, and artillery and the kinds of platforms, the armor platforms that we're providing. Uh, And so their next uh, offensive operation is going to take place sometime in the spring, and and that is mere weeks from now. And so we're doing everything that that we can to make sure that they have relevant capability uh, to be successful in, in that upcoming fight. Let's talk about that upcoming offensive, because there is an expectation that both Russia and Ukraine are going to make a real push in the spring. And there is some question as to whether Russia has already begun its offensive. What do you expect the next month or two to look like? Well, as we've seen for the last several weeks, uh, the fighting around the Bakhmut area has been uh, pretty intense. Uh, Russia continues to pour in uh, large numbers of troops that are ill-trained and ill-equipped. And in many cases, those troops are uh, meeting their their demise in in short order. And so we can expect to see more of that. And uh, I expect that the Ukrainians will... Uh, continue to uh, do everything uh, within their means to to hold the ground. They've done a great job of that thus far. When you but say you built- expect to see more of this in the next couple months, do you mean more of a stalemate? Do you mean this fighting in Bakhmut is just going to drag on? Is that what the spring offensive looks like? As Ukraine uh, works to uh, to hold uh, hold its ground, it's also building combat power. So I think that that will provide uh, Ukraine an opportunity to begin to change the dynamics on the battlefield. And by the way, uh, all of our allies and partners that are part of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, and there's some 50 countries that uh, that participate in that, uh, they're bellying up to the bar and they're providing uh, uh, support uh, in every way possible. Well, you say that the contact group is holding United Front, but the Spanish prime minister says it's time for Ukraine to negotiate with Russia. I mean, if Ukraine does not achieve a remarkable success on the battlefield, do you anticipate those calls to negotiate growing? Well, I, uh, again, I, I can't predict uh, one way or the other how countries are going to view this post, uh, post-offensive. post If there is an, uh, some sort of negotiation in the future, 
uh, Ukraine will have a strong hand at the at the, at the uh, negotiating table. You mentioned that Russia has been pouring in large numbers of ill-trained, ill-equipped troops. Uh, according to the UK, Russia now has 200,000 casualties. That's dead and wounded. Um, they've apparently lost half their tanks, a third of their armored personnel carriers. Could you see the Russian military collapsing? How bad is it right now for Russia? Uh, I, I don't see it collapsing, uh, but I do see them continuing to be challenged going forward. And I think as as Ukraine develops the capability that we're working on right now, they'll have the ability to maneuver and uh, and take back uh, ground in the same fashion that you saw them do in Kharkiv uh, months ago. Uh, you'll recall that when they started that operation, they maneuvered very quickly and, and rolled up a lot of terrain that was previously occupied by, by Russia. This all builds up to what may be the most important question. How does this end? Well, I, I think... Uh, Again, you know, we're going to focus on, you know, what's in front of us right now and, and put them in the best possible position to continue to be successful. And I think uh, that'll lead us to uh, uh, to um, Ukraine being, in a, again, a good, a good place, whether or not the, the fighting continues or whether or not they, they decide to go to the negotiating table. Well, uh, to be specific, back in November, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley said, Ukraine cannot achieve the goal of kicking all the Russians out of the country, including Crimea. Do you think he's right about that? I, I don't want to speculate at this point. I think, you know, my goal is to provide them uh, uh, the capabilities required to achieve their objectives. And that's what me and the chairman are going to continue to stay focused on. Well, their uh, objective you know, specifically is to drive all the Russians out. Is the U.S. goal to help Ukraine drive all the Russians out? Or is the U.S. goal to help Ukraine get to a strong negotiating position? Well, I mean, they can be driven out or Putin can decide to take his forces back out of Ukraine because he's in such a bad position. Uh, and, uh, and that could happen as well. Uh, it could end this today, Ari. And we all know that, that this, is, this war uh, is happening because of one man. One man's desire to erase his... Uh, his neighbor's boundaries and, you know, occupy uh, his neighbor's territory. And this is, uh, again, unjustified, uh, unprovoked, uh, and, uh, and Putin could end this at any point in time in the future. If Russia were to retreat to where it was before the full-scale invasion a year ago, meaning it hangs on to Crimea, it remains in parts of eastern Ukraine, would the U.S. consider that a Ukrainian victory and urge Ukraine to end the war at that? U Ukraine's going to decide uh, what victory is going to look like, uh, Ari and and uh, so I, I don't want to speak for President Zelensky or or the Ukrainian people. I think that's for that's for them to decide. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking with us from the Pentagon. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Ari. Real pleasure to be here with you. As many as 55,000 formerly incarcerated people in Minnesota will become eligible to vote under a bill that's about to become law. It's part of a broader voting access push in a state where Democrats now fully call the shots. Brian Back, Stub member station NPR News reports. Even with a major snowstorm bearing down, a large contingent showed up at the state capitol to urge passage of a law giving Minnesota felons a right to vote after leaving custody. Since the 1960s, parole and probation have disqualified thousands of people. 55,000 
non-incarcerated felons locked out of voting in Minnesota tried to regain access in the courts, but failed. A legislative push 20 years in the making ultimately succeeded last night, propelled forward in a state house now fully in Democratic control. Lawmakers sent the felon voting bill to Governor Tim Walz, who plans to sign it next week. We should not continue to perpetually punish individuals. Senate President Bobby Joe Champion represents a diverse Minneapolis district and helped lead the drive. He says denying voter eligibility shoves felons trying to rebuild their lives to the side and does little to further public safety. We know that when people do structured and pro-social things, that good things happen. And why should we deny someone the right to vote? We want them to be connected to the community and a part of the fabric of our community. But most Republicans say with crime a concern, it's the wrong time to reduce consequences. And they sought to keep restrictions for people convicted of election fraud, sex crimes, and murder. Senator Andrew Matthews says there needs to be distinctions, like in Delaware and Florida. People that commit a crime of murder or manslaughter, they have permanently taken away their victim's right to vote. Minnesota will join 21 states in automatically granting voting rights after incarceration ends. Community organizer Janae Bates, who led those chants in the Capitol hallways, says it's personal. Her husband is currently serving time, and she predicts the Minnesota law will invite people back to the polls beyond those made newly eligible. Because there's a lot of folks who actually can vote. They're off of probation, off of papers, and they don't realize that they have the right to vote. Democratic Secretary of State Steve Simon says his team is ready to do its part. This is a really big law change, so we're going to be there with our nonpartisan voter outreach folks, making sure everyone gets word. Other proposals before Minnesota's legislature go hand in hand. Lawmakers could soon make voter registration automatic upon issuance of a driver's license or application for government programs. Advocates say that step will take one more hurdle out of the way for people who haven't had the chance to vote due to their past. For NPR News, I'm Brian Baxt in St. Paul, Minnesota. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418 and in about 15 minutes, you'll get the latest on the Israeli raid that killed at least 11 Palestinians in Nablus. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. In business news, Cambridge-based Moderna plans to expand its research to the human genome. The vaccine maker announced today it's partnering with a subsidiary of Waltham-based biotech Elevate Bio. Together, they will work to research and develop technology for the treatment of genetic diseases. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down 84 points, finishing at 33,045. The Nasdaq finished the day up 14 points, closing at 11,507. The S&P 500 is down 6 points closing at 39.91. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. 
we will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It is 43 degrees in Boston and some precipitations moving into the region. You can expect a mix of snow, rain, sleet, and freezing rain tonight through tomorrow. Snowfall totals will generally range from a coating to one inch or so from Boston down to the South Shore, west to Worcester. North of Boston, over the border to southern New Hampshire, it'll be more like two to four inches. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at MattressFirm.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Nearly every major grocery store chain has a loyalty program. You get discounts and rewards. The store gets information about what you buy. So what exactly happens to that information? Reporter John Keegan of The Markup investigated the Kroger grocery chain, and he found that customer data is worth a lot of money, and the information collected goes way beyond what you buy. John Keegan, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Start by explaining what kind of data Kroger collects and how they gather it. Sure. So the kinds of information, what they do is, you you know, you have to sign up for a loyalty program card, right? And when you do that, you are sharing some personal information with the company. You're giving them your name, your phone number, your email address, probably your mailing address. That information is then taken and enriched. What they do is they go out to third-party data brokers, and they will take that information you gave them and kind of use it as a key to create a broader profile of who you are as a shopper. This can include demographic information about your race and ethnicity, your financial information, your employment status, and even some of your online browsing activity. So it's quite a quite a bit of information that they're collecting. And I think most people, you know, again, they're expecting it's just what types of chips you're buying, but it's actually quite a bit more information. So the grocery store chain gathers all this info, and then what do they do with it? So they take all this information and they sell insights that they derive from analysis back to the brands that sell things in supermarkets. This is extremely valuable information that the brands kind of need to understand not only what items are selling, but why. How much money is Kroger making off of something like this? Kroger is making quite a bit of money on this right now. So Kroger has its own data sciences company within its, within its corporate structure called 8451. And this company is part of a, a group of alternative profit businesses under their umbrella that they expect will make a billion dollars in profit for them per year. So it's quite a bit of money. Should we as consumers view this as harmful or could it actually be helpful for stores to understand us better so that they can give us more of what we want and less of what we don't? Kroger would say that all of the data that they're collecting is helping making your shopping experience better for you. But it comes down to a couple of things. Number one, Kroger is taking this information and sharing it with an unknown number of partners. The other thing is that I don't think most people would consider their shopping items to be sensitive information, but you can look in someone's shopping cart and see if they're expecting a child 
whether they're buying kosher foods or you could get hints about their ethnicity or other things about some, what's happening in someone's um, household. So this is more sensitive information than I think most people expect. What did Kroger say to you about all this? We reached out multiple times to Kroger and we did not get any response. Um, we reached out to Albertsons. Um, Albertsons is included in this because Kroger and Albertsons recently announced a $24.6 billion merger, which would create the, take the number one and number two supermarket chains in the United States and create this new, um, you know, the largest supermarket chain in America, which would include half of American households as customers. So Albertsons uh, gave us some information about how they use this stuff. Um, also in Kroger's privacy policy and both, both um, with Albertsons as well, they say that all the information that they share with third-party companies is anonymized and aggregated, and they take privacy very seriously. So what's your bottom line guidance for consumers? I would say that most people, when they, they have to make a decision, when you're entering into this value exchange with a supermarket, it's important to know exactly what you're giving up. And I think the less you know about exactly the extent of that data collection, it may be a less fair value that you're getting. Um, if you're a California or a Nevada or a Virginia resident, you have the ability to opt out of these programs and still use the uh, rewards program. And then if you're in California or, or Virginia, you can request a copy of your data to see exactly what information is being collected. And if you're worried about being tracked, um, we talked to some experts and they said the best thing to do is not sign up for the rewards program and pay with cash. Is that what you do when you go grocery shopping? Well, I don't pay with cash, but I do not give my number to the for, for a rewards program, although my wife and I have a disagreement about that. That's John Keegan of The Markup. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you very much. The pastry baklava is a delicacy in southern Turkey, and the earthquake that killed tens of thousands of people there and in Syria also disrupted this proud culinary tradition. Well, NPR's Daniel Esterin reports that one famous family restaurant is baking the dessert again, though the mood is hardly festive. The Chadash family are the baklava barons of Gaziantep. The city's known for the sticky sweet pastry. Burhan Chadash is in the fifth generation and says his family is one of the city's oldest makers of baklava. Not oldest one, in the top five, I'm sure about it. <laughs> his family's restaurant, Imam Chadash, ships their baklava across Turkey and as far away as Australia. They serve kebabs and local dishes too. The restaurant survived the recent catastrophic earthquake, but the owners were sleeping in their car. More than 200 people, employees with their families, slept on the restaurant floor. Some had homes destroyed. And the family stopped baking baklava for the first time in about 90 years. Chadash says it seemed like more of a luxury than a need. He says in Turkish, the restaurant transformed itself into a charity kitchen, cooking whatever leftover meat they had, preparing soup, feeding thousands of people a day, delivering children's medicines. Nine days after the quake, Chadash convinced his father to reopen the restaurant and make baklava again. Their customers were asking, and it sent a message. This dessert is the symbol of this city. He continues in Turkish. It is a dessert that is made entirely with manpower. It's not like a produced by machines or anything. I think it is a sign things are improving, things are getting better, because people can work and people can produce baklava. So I think it's a nice thing to be able to produce it again. 
16 bakers dressed in white roll out dough onto a white marble table in a bright white room with wafting clouds of starch. It's a dreamy sight. We watch the whole delicate process, layering a tray with buttery ghee from the neighboring city Orpha, which some believe was the birthplace of the biblical patriarch Abraham, then some Turkish kaimak cream and homegrown emerald pistachios before slicing the tray into portions. It looks easy, but the hardest part. So baklava is back, but things aren't the same. Here in the restaurant, nearly all the customers are aid workers or civil engineers inspecting damage. At one table, we meet two Turkish car repair shop owners who flew in from Istanbul to volunteer. Erkan Şenel says it's been a grim experience. My friend here maybe carried out over 20 bodies out of the rubble. Chanel said they hadn't showered in a week and finally took a break to come to this famous restaurant for a bite, but then they couldn't stomach it. I can't tell you how hard it is to try to eat something after what we've seen in the earthquake zones. We know the earthquake victims are fellow citizens, are in such pain, it's hard for us to eat anything. We ordered food, we weren't able to eat it. We ordered this baklava, I just took a bite and I stopped. He says he could go on forever praising the baklava at Imam Chadash, but he just didn't feel like this was the right time. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Gaziantep, Turkey. This is NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 429. And coming up in about 15 minutes, Pennsylvania residents who live near the site of a train derailment in Ohio say they are not getting the attention and the recovery help that they should. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is on his way back to the United States after an historic visit to Eastern Europe to mark the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Before leaving Poland, Biden met with the leaders of NATO's eastern flank to reaffirm the U.S. commitment to the security of the region. We provided critical security assistance to Ukraine and critical support to literally millions of refugees. We've helped ensure Ukrainians can access basic services, and together we'll continue our enduring support for Ukraine as they defend their freedom. Many leaders of NATO's eastern flank worry that Russian President Vladimir Putin could take military action against them next if he's successful in Ukraine. Thursday marks one year since Russian troops invaded Ukraine. The World Health Organization says international funding is still urgently needed to rebuild health systems in northwest Syria after the recent earthquakes there. NPR's Nareed Eisenman has more. 
WHO Director General Tedros Adnam Ghebreyesus says the quakes have damaged seven hospitals and 145 health facilities in Syria, many of them in the northwestern rebel-held region that was already devastated after years of conflict with Syria's government. And while World Health officials say they've largely managed to restore supplies of medicines to the region, they're facing a much bigger challenge when it comes to rebuilding basic health infrastructure. To that end, Tedros is calling on international donors to fund a recent flash appeal by the WHO for nearly 85 million in health relief funding for Syria, as well as neighboring Turkey in the wake of the earthquakes. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. Stocks traded mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 84 points. The Nasdaq Composite rose 14. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston Medical Center will soon stop providing clinical addiction services at a former hotel in the area of the city known as Mass and Cass. The program started early last year as the city worked to clear out a tent encampment in the area because of public health and safety concerns. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more. BMC says it will end its urgent care-type addiction services at the Roundhouse Hotel due to a lack of long-term funding. Steve Fox chairs the South End Forum, which represents neighborhood associations in the area. He thinks such programs should operate away from Mass and Cass because it has a concentration of addiction and homeless services and a major drug market. I hate to see any addiction treatment program shut down. But it needs to be in a location where people have a fighting chance to actually build a recovery. BMC also operates 60 transitional housing beds in the former hotel under contract with the city through June. The city says it's evaluating options to continue providing services there or at another location. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Transportation officials are preparing to remove the trailer and the MBTA Orange Line car on it from I-495 in Chelmsford. The oversized shipment en route to Medford came loose from its tow vehicle last night. State police say the breakdown and right travel lane of 495 North are closed at Route 3. Beginning at 5 this afternoon, more lane and ramp closures will be in place in the area to help with the removal. State police anticipate all lanes will will reopen by 5 tomorrow morning. The T says the new Orange Line car was not damaged. The Massachusetts Republican Party may have more debt than it previously disclosed. The newly elected party chair has sent a letter to Republican state committee members saying the organization has fallen into fiscal disarray and has more than $600,000 in unpaid invoices. The party has hired a firm to review the invoices as the state GOP seeks to stabilize its finances. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. It's 43 degrees in Boston, some precipitations on the way, a mix of snow, rain, sleet, and freezing rain tonight through tomorrow. Snowfall totals generally ranging from a coating to one inch or so from Boston down to the South Shore, west to Worcester. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, 
a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. To news now of a major raid by Israeli troops in the Palestinian city of Nablus today. That's in the occupied West Bank. It was a rare daytime raid in that city's crowded center. Palestinian officials say at least 11 people were killed and they blame Israeli forces. Israel says its forces came under fire as they killed three militants who had staged attacks and were planning more. Well, This is the latest in a series of raids and attacks, raising fears the violence could escalate yet further. Joe Fetterman is the AP News Director, supervising coverage of Israel and the Palestinian territories. He's on the line now from Jerusalem. Joe, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me on. Fill us in on whatever other details you have been able to to nail down in terms of what actually happened today. Well, as you mentioned, the uh, raid took place in broad daylight, and that's something that doesn't happen that often. The Army tries to operate at night. They say that this also minimizes the chances of what we saw today, civilian casualties. And the reason they moved in in the daylight was because they had intelligence that a wanted militant, somebody who was wanted in the killing of an Israeli soldier last fall, they had found his hideout and they had to move quickly. So they pulled off this rare operation, but it sparked very heavy fighting. May I ask, have you or other AP reporters there been able to fact check or verify that Israeli account of things in terms of just how urgent they say it was to go in and go in in that daytime? Well, they're talking about intelligence, and that's not something that they normally share with us. What we do know is that Palestinian militant groups, and Nablus is known as a stronghold of militant groups, confirmed that the three people who were targeted in the original raid were indeed members of an armed group. In all, six of the people have been confirmed as members of militant groups, but there were also two older men. Also, a 16-year-old boy was killed. Um, How are Palestinian leaders reacting to this? It's a pattern that we've seen uh, many times in the past. Palestinian leaders in the West Bank obviously are upset. They're appealing for the international community to hold Israel to account. But what you also see in the Gaza Strip on the other side of Israel, that's a territory that is controlled by the Hamas militant group. And Hamas came out with a very belligerent statement saying that its patience is running thin. Another group, Islamic Jihad, which also is very strong in Gaza, is vowing revenge. How real is the fear that this will escalate tensions, tensions that are already clearly running so high? I'm very wary of making predictions. You can only sort of analyze on what we've seen in the past. And when there's an Israeli raid like this, there's usually a response. There could be attempts of further violence, and then things just continue to spin and build on on each other. When you talk to people there in Jerusalem and beyond, is there a sense of weariness, of fear, of anger? What? The people who were affected the most are in the West Bank. And if you saw the scenes in Nablus today, it started as a pinpoint raid, but it quickly spread. So heavy damage to an entire really neighborhood. Stores were shot up and cars were flattened. So there's a lot of public anger on the Palestinian side. On the Israeli side in Jerusalem, we're a little bit insulated from it. Nablus is about 30 miles or so away from here, but you can feel the tension and the police announced not too long ago that they are going on a heightened alert now and they are beefing up forces in Jerusalem and also in the West Bank. Joe Fetterman of the AP, the Associated Press, speaking with us from Jerusalem. Thanks very much. Thank you. 
The Biden administration says it's concerned that China is considering giving Russia lethal support for its campaign in Ukraine. Nearly a year into the war, by all accounts, that hasn't happened yet, and Beijing continues to try to walk a very fine line. NPR's John Ruich reports from the China-Russia border. On the banks of the Amur River in the town of Heihe, there's a huge trading center. It's called Duo, which roughly translates to Russian products aplenty. The ground floor is a hypermarket full of stuff from Russia. Crackers, vodka, soap. And upstairs... Yuan Yuan is live streaming on China's version of TikTok from a product showroom. She's flogging Russian sea salt, flour, and other goods. I feel like people are all supporting Russia. There was a time at the start of the war when people online were frenetic about buying Russian products just to show their support of Russia. And she supports Russia, too. I hope Russia wins. We're pro-Russia. That sentiment is easy to understand in China, especially in a border town like Heihe. On the eve of the war last year, China and Russia announced that they had a no-limits partnership. Chinese officials speak regularly about how strong the country's ties are with Russia, and Beijing has refused to condemn the invasion of Ukraine. Tong Zhao is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He says 12 months of war has only enhanced something that Chinese policymakers believed at the outset. China has come to this conclusion that this is a war that was firstly provoked by the U.S.-led Western countries and then was used by the U.S.-led Western countries to weaken Russia. That scares Beijing, and it makes China more willing to show solidarity. Russia being weakened basically means the team is weakened. And if Russia is defeated, then China becomes the next target. Recent Western military assistance to Ukraine has only added to Beijing's anxiety. But there are constraints. China still has choices to make, and these choices are increasingly difficult. Lyle Goldstein is a visiting professor at Brown University who specializes in Chinese and Russian security. Russia is not a big market for China, not compared to Korea, Japan, or the United States or or Europe. And I think that explains a lot of China's policy. Chinese trade with Russia has soared since the start of the war, but officials say it still amounts to just 3% of China's total trade. So on the war, Beijing's rhetoric has been shrill, but its actions relatively restrained. That's what may have been on display in June when senior Russia hand and vice foreign minister Lo Yucheng was abruptly removed from his post. Carnegie's Tong Zhao again. He had been very focal in uh, supporting Russia, you know, pushing China to adopt a sympathetic approach uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine. And there was some internal reflection on that decision. Back in Heihe, the economy is finally starting to sputter back to life after three years of harsh COVID controls. But the border with Russia remains closed to individuals, and there's no traffic on a new bridge over the river. A street vendor frying meat and egg crepes says business is still way down. He says there aren't any Russians visiting like normal. And even though he doesn't understand high politics, he supports Russia in the war because they're good neighbors. Inside Upinduo, the trading center, shopkeeper Jia Changhai fiddles with some Russian stacking dolls. He complains his business is hurting because the Russian ruble has been hit hard by the war. We want Russia to end the war soon. 
When it ends, we can develop the economy. There is no time now to develop the economy. This week, China's top diplomat Wang Yi is visiting Moscow to prepare for a potential trip by Xi Jinping in the coming months. Beijing says it favors a political solution to end the war. But with Western leaders insistent on a Russian defeat, China's balancing act may become a little trickier as the conflict enters its second year. John Ruich, NPR News, in Heihe on the China-Russia border. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The derailment of a train carrying toxic chemicals over two weeks ago has brought national attention to the residents of East Palestine, Ohio. But some of the people most impacted by the derailment live in Pennsylvania, some just yards from the state line. Pennsylvania's governor visited with some of his state's affected residents yesterday. Some say they still feel like they're left out of recovery efforts, as WESA's Oliver Morrison reports. Lee Hostetter lives just over a mile away from where Norfolk Southern's train derailed. He could see fire over the trees in his front yard. Hostetter lives a half mile away from the Ohio border in rural Pennsylvania. And he doesn't feel like his family has help because he lives in a different state. We're like in a different world out here. They're leaving us out. And uh, this is serious. I mean, you know, we want to know how bad it really is. When the derailment occurred two weeks ago, Hostetter wasn't going to leave his home, but once he and his family saw what the toxic plume looked like, they hit the road. We set up on the hill there to see which way the smoke was going. Well, the smoke went up to the ceiling of the clouds were way down low, and instead of it going on, you know, blowing away, it started forming a mushroom, like a nuclear bomb went off. Adam Cornwell lives down the road less than a quarter mile from the Ohio border and about a mile from the accident. Well, I felt my house shake, and I thought the neighbor's house was on fire. Till I went up over the hill, it looked like the whole town was on fire. Cornwell says he and his fiance heeded evacuation orders. But when he returned a few days later, his fiance had to wipe a slimy yellow residue off the walls and counters. He's seen reports of animals dying, and he's worried about what that means for the deer he hunts. I don't want to eat the deer if they're breathing in that contaminants, you know, so I pretty much can't hunt here no more. Norfolk Southern has offered $1,000 in compensation to residents in Ohio affected by the accident. And the company says Pennsylvania residents within the evacuation area are eligible for the same $1,000 as well. Pennsylvania leaders have increased their presence this week. Governor Josh Shapiro said air quality tests have been conducted in Pennsylvania and so it's safe to breathe. The first water test results should be available in a few days. He also met yesterday with residents who live near the state's border. During a press conference earlier, he tried to assuage any concerns that Pennsylvania residents are being ignored. I want to continue to hear from the residents. Whatever needs they have will be addressed. Whatever costs that are borne in Pennsylvania will be paid for by Norfolk Southern. There will be no problems relative to Ohio getting something that Pennsylvania doesn't. Republicans have begun to criticize the response of national and local Democratic leaders. Today, former President Donald Trump did so while visiting East Palestine. Three days ago, Doug Mastriano, Shapiro's opponent in last year's gubernatorial election, says Pennsylvania residents are being ignored. Although Lee Hostetter says he hasn't seen much government help, he doesn't have politicians on his mind. He places ultimate blame on Norfolk Southern. He thinks the company should have waited until the weather changed before releasing toxic chemicals even though Norfolk Southern said the process was necessary to prevent a catastrophic explosion. 
the clouds were low, they knew it. And they were just in a hurry to get it out of there so they could bring the trains through. So they put uh, money over human beings as far as I'm concerned. The weather doesn't heed arbitrary state lines, Hostetter says, and he doesn't think the company's or government's response should either. For NPR News, I'm Oliver Morrison in Pittsburgh. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448 and coming up in about five minutes, the dating scene at the grocery store. That and much more ahead on All Things Considered. You are part of the WBUR community and that's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, March 8th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. You'll find details at wbur.org slash open meetings. It's 43 degrees in Boston now, and some precipitation is moving into the region. The short version, a mix of snow, rain, sleet, and freezing rain. That's tonight through tomorrow. In general, snowfall totals will range from a coating to maybe about an inch or so for Boston through the South Shore and west to Worcester. North of Boston, over the border to southern New Hampshire, it will be more like two to four inches. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston. Anyone can wear the mask. You could wear the mask. If you didn't know that before, I hope you do now. Local artists highlight black superheroes and black comic creators. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, and now for some news about NPR itself. NPR announced a major restructuring today and revealed it's about to lay off about 10% of the workforce. Our CEO, John Lansing, cited a drop of $30 million in projected advertising revenues. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik joins me. And David, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, but uh, this is a tough day, as you know, here at NPR. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's uh, it's a real loss, as John Lansing said uh, yeah. uh, in a memo to staff. I've been here over 18 years. It's the toughest cuts I've seen. It's probably the toughest since the early 80s. Uh, what we know is not a lot except about the extent of it. Uh, and what John Lansing said to me was that uh, it would not be uniform across. He wasn't just going to take a, a hatchet and do the same across all divisions. He wants to be... Uh, strategic and thoughtful about how it's done. Uh, But, you know, this is necessarily going to be us doing not only less with less, but reconfiguring how we do it. Uh, He said that this is going to be really the focus of how NPR restructures itself in a significant way. Now, what does that actually mean when he says he wants to be thoughtful? He doesn't think this will be uniform across divisions. Can you decipher what he's actually envisioning? We don't know. We don't. Uh, what we do know is three three different kinds of strategic uh, priorities he's placing on it. If you 
pack them together. Uh, one of which is that he's talked about NPR's North Star, and that is that both as a sense of mission and a sense of purpose, uh, and also as a business proposition, NPR has to deepen and broaden its audience to you know seek younger uh, and more diverse uh, audience base, and that that's the way in which he sees uh, building for the future. And he said that since he arrived in the fall of twenty. Uh, 19. He's also talked about unifying its newsroom with its programming side. The programming is where so much growth has happened lately, particularly in the podcasting division. But these divisions in some ways are artificial. A lot of our colleagues uh, doing journalism are doing so under the rubric of podcasting, but it's still really part of a greater journalistic function. Sure. Uh, uh, and so there's that. And he says, you know, this was part of a, a strategic element uh uh, beyond where he wants to integrate uh, NPR more fully with its stations, integrate both in terms of what we do content-wise, but in terms of raising money and distributing our content online. Okay. So 10% of the workforce, that's going to add up to about 100 jobs. As we know, NPR is not alone here. There are a whole lot of media companies in a budget crunch. How does this news today from our newsroom fit in with a broader picture of our industry? It's been a real crunch. You saw hundreds of layoffs at CNN. They killed their projected streaming service called CNN Plus. You saw 7% cuts at Vox Media, 6% at Spotify uh, and at Gannett. And you saw these huge cuts at these huge other places, at Google, Meta, uh, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, that also rely on advertising uh, dollars. It's one of the first place uh, corporate executives cut when they fear the economy going soft as they have lately, even though unemployment remains very low. That is NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. And David, thank you for reporting on NPR just as you would any other media company. You bet. The grocery store can be a stressful place, especially with the price of eggs going up. But NPR's Fiona Guerin finds that with the right company, it can actually be fun. This week on our series, I'm really into going on a date to the supermarket. If you treat grocery shopping like a chore... All you're going to notice are the bruised apples, long lines, grim yellow lighting, and the bitter chill of the frozen aisle. But a grocery store is only as tedious as you make it. Disneyland also has long lines and a hellscape parking lot, but you probably don't treat that visit like a chore. You go in wide-eyed and open to the magic. The first grocery store date I ever went on, I was third-wheeling my grandparents. After we hit every free sample station in Costco, we checked out and followed the eight-foot-long hot dog billboard towards the cafeteria. As we parked our carts beside two white plastic picnic tables, my grandma told me that the Costco cafeteria was her and my grandpa's favorite date spot. There, with several of their grandkids, Bob and Ellen sat down under an indoor red umbrella and shared a chocolate and vanilla swirl ice cream cup. I left Costco that day still knowing very little about dating, but I held on to that idea that a date could be something simple, but still surprising. I knew my girlfriend was a keeper when we ended up at Safeway on our third date. We just needed a place to meet up before going on a hike. But Safeway turned into the main event. We wandered around for over an hour and left with just one slice of rainbow cake to share. Thus began a long tradition of grocery store dates. Should I get pickles or banana peppers? I just like a little something acidic. 
That's my girlfriend and co-shopper, Adeline Murphy. Jojo! Jojo's Jojo. glasses. Oh my god, those are definitely designed for a child. They say three and or, up. Or uh, homosexual. Oh my gosh, they look great. They look really good. Maybe my girlfriend and I are defining a date too broadly. But you can learn a lot about someone from what they add to the cart. Does your date consider a protein bar to be a treat? Do they opt for the generic cookies or okay, scoff at anything before. below the Milano shelf? And what do they pair with sushi? I know this is a wild combination, but how do you feel about potato salad? <laughs> I think that that's a very natural combination. Let's do it. This information can save you a lot of time while sifting through potential partners. And you can figure it out by buying some random snacks instead of a three-course meal and a bottle of wine. Buying potato salad at like 9 p.m. <laughs> Your total is 18. But the most important information that you can glean from a grocery store date is whether this person is willing to bring their energy and excitement to something very ordinary. When we met, I had never been to Whole Foods and my girlfriend had never been to Wegmans. So we would blindly debate about which one was better. I know, pinning grocery stores against each other like Pokemon cards is a stupid thing to do in any context, but especially when you only have half the facts. So we had to settle the score. One day, we finally went to Wegmans. Their forest of a plant section took over the sidewalk and almost spilt into the street. My plant-loving girlfriend was in awe. I knew I was about to win. I bought her plants, and we ate cake and kombucha sitting on the curb by her car. With her head on my shoulders, she told me this was the best date she'd ever been on. We laughed because she was joking, and that was ridiculous. But she was only half-joking. So when you get the chance, pull off the road into any old Kroger parking lot. Give someone a tour of your local Trader Joe's like it's your private art collection. In Costco, an ice cream under a red umbrella can be a tropical getaway if it makes you slow down and take a seat. Do romantic things in regular places, because what could be more wonderful than regular love? That's NPR's Fiona Guerin. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.59 and 43 degrees in Boston with a mix of rain, snow, sleet, and freezing rain on the way. Coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll get the latest from Nina Totenberg on big tech arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court.
And keep in mind, you can follow the news with WBUR wherever, whenever. Just tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As Russia's war with Ukraine reaches the one-year mark, many say the war is entering a critical phase, but some Republican lawmakers are raising questions about the ongoing support from the U.S. It's Wednesday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. The effects of a train derailment in Ohio that spilled hazardous chemicals are still rippling through the community and beyond. Step one is making sure that this cleanup occurs, and step two is making sure Congress acts to create better safety in our rail system. Whales are washing up on beaches and people are spreading misinformation about the reason, but global warming is likely the cause. So in response to this, we are seeing populations move around and go into areas that they haven't historically been in. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Russia's parliament has moved to formally suspend Russian participation in the sole remaining nuclear agreement with the U.S. The move comes a day after President Vladimir Putin called for the suspension of New START in a closely watched State of the Nation address. From Moscow NPR's Charles Maines has more. Putin said Russia would suspend but not leave the New START treaty with the United States. He said the move was in protest over U.S. and its NATO allies seeking Russia's strategic defeat in Ukraine. In separate votes, lawmakers in Russia's lower and upper House of Parliament have now overwhelmingly approved the measure, which awaits Putin's signature. The Kremlin insists it will rejoin the treaty only if it sees a change in Western policy. Yet officials from the foreign and defense ministries assured Moscow intended to abide by the treaty's limits on nuclear delivery systems in the meantime, including informing the U.S. of deployments to avoid triggering a false alarm. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll is taking a look at how Democrats and Republicans are feeling about their prospective 2024 presidential nominees. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports President Biden is getting some welcome news out of what's expected to be a run for re-election. President Biden's approval rating is up to 49% with registered voters. It hasn't been that high since the chaotic withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan in August of 2021. And more Democrats are now saying that Biden gives them their best shot in 2024. 50% say so compared to just 38% in November. Former President Trump, though, is slumping with Republican voters. 54% of Republicans and independents who lean in their direction say Trump is not likely the candidate who gives the GOP the best chance of winning back the White House. And his favorability rating with the group is the lowest it's been in six years. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. A major winter storm is already disrupting travel, closing schools and shuttering grocery stores in Minnesota. Minnesota Minnesota Public Radio's Tim Nelson says there may be another foot of snow on the way. The storm is coming in two waves and dropped four to five inches across the southern half of the state Tuesday night. But a bigger storm is looming with 11 to 16 inches of new snow expected overnight. 
Jeff Lee is a spokesperson for the Twin Cities International Airport and said Wednesday morning that air traffic has been cut sharply. Today we've already have over 400 flights that are canceled. Um, that's more than 50 percent probably of our operations. We expect more to come. In southwestern Minnesota, county road crews began pulling plows off the road for safety and the Minnesota Department of Transportation is advising no travel at all. The three biggest school districts in the state have also canceled at least two days of school. For NPR News, I'm Tim Nelson at the Twin Cities Airport. Federal Reserve policymakers at their last meeting agreed to reduce the size of their latest interest rate hike to a quarter point, already at the highest level in some 15 years. That continues to weigh in Wall Street, though. The Dow is down 84 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. State Republican committee members are getting a better picture of how dire the finances are at the Massachusetts Republican Party. A new disclosure comes three weeks after the party elected a new leader. WBUR Steve Brown has details. New party chair Amy Carnavali and four members this week, an audit has found outstanding invoices totaling over $602,000, substantially more than the $47,000 the party has in the bank. Carnavali says some of the invoices are unsubstantiated and appear not to be the responsibility of the party. She adds she's working with legal counsel and a compliance firm to better understand who authorized the payments and in what capacity they were acting. Carnavali took over control of the party last month from former chairman Jim Lyons. Lyons came under fire by members for channeling the party's limited resources into what many considered an unwinnable gubernatorial campaign instead of legislative and countywide races that the Republican candidates had a better shot at winning. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The town of Needham has settled a racial profiling lawsuit. The suit was brought by Marvin Henry. He's a black man, and in 2020, Needham police detained and handcuffed him near his workplace in response to a shoplifting call. The shoplifter was later identified as a different black man. As part of the settlement, Needham police will continue mandatory bias training. Henry will receive an undisclosed amount of money. The Golden Retriever, known as the official dog of the Boston Marathon, has died. Spencer is best known for holding a Boston Strong flag on race days on the marathon route in Ashland. Spencer's family says he was diagnosed with an inoperable cancer in September. Last month, the Boston Athletic Association honored Spencer during a ceremony at the Fairmont Copley Plaza. Spencer was 13 years old. In the forecast, some rain and snow is filling in across most of the state. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says the wintry weather will linger for a while. Snow, sleet, rain all out there and will come down at a steady clip at times through tonight. The rain snow line making slow northward progress but won't make it much past the Mass Pike or so. Snow totals an inch or so in the city to the south shore, coating possible on Cape Cod but two to four inches north of Boston into southern New Hampshire. Tomorrow morning there will still be lingering wintry mix meaning some tough travel, lingering pockets of freezing drizzle into the afternoon and then another brief area of light freezing rain late tomorrow evening may re-slick in the roads. By Friday it's gone gone, but colder air moves in. Highs in the 30s early will drop into the 20s and teens by Friday evening and will be stuck in the 20s for highs on Saturday. It is 42 degrees now. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A year ago, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine and stunned the world. Most thought Kyiv would fall. Well, that didn't happen. Ukraine's forces have upended expectations, and through it all, U.S. military aid has played a key role. But now the invasion has become a grinding war, and some U.S. lawmakers are raising questions about that support. So how does the year ahead look? We're going to put that question to three NPR correspondents, Frank Lankfitt in Kiev, Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman, and White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. And uh, Frank, I'm going to let you kick us off since you were there. You're on the ground, and I know you were recently um, out toward the front lines in Donbass, in eastern Ukraine, talking with soldiers. What are they saying? What's the mood? Well, I got I got to say, Mary Louise, it was kind of pessimistic. Um, they were saying that the Russians are building up huge numbers on the front lines. They're using everything from convicts, which we've heard about, of course, the the Wagner, uh, the mercenary group, as well as new conscripts. They're throwing them into the fight. And the Ukrainians that I talked to just didn't feel like they had the numbers to match the Russians and also not getting the kind of quality of people into the army that they were getting if you go back to the first two months of the war. I was talking to a sergeant named Andre. He oversees a company of more than 100 reconnaissance soldiers. <laughs> so what he says here is the new people are coming, the ones who are being mobilized, they're not that motivated. And the core of our forces, the ones who have been with us since the beginning, they're coming to an end. And Mary Louise, what he means by that is, is they've been killed. Mm, it's just awful to hear. Um, stay with those new people, with the new conscripts. I keep thinking of them. These are people who were civilians yesterday, and today they're being sent to the front. Yeah, and I've met a number of them, and I watched them being trained. And it's a tall order. Just like Andre was saying, you know, in the beginning, there were all these highly, highly motivated people. Now, these are people who are sort of being conscripted. Some of them don't get a lot of training, sometimes a few days, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, if they're lucky, before they're sent to the front. And the, some, the ones that I saw seemed quite frightened. And Andre says some of them, they won't even shoot in battle because they don't want to kill anybody. Mm. Okay, so that's a little bit of where things stand in Ukraine. Tom Bowman, tell me where things stand at the Pentagon, because we keep hearing this is a critical moment in the war. But we've heard that over and over in this war. Where is the Pentagon in terms of where things stand? Well, they do say it is critical. General Milley told us it's a critical moment. and The it, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Right. And it is because both the Russians and the Ukrainians are mounting offensives now or will in the coming weeks and months. Each side is trying to grab more territory to have a better hand in negotiations whenever they come. For the Russians, they're trying to seize more of the east, the Donbass area where Frank was. And for the Ukrainians, they'll try to push back in that area or maybe try to sever the land bridge to the south between hmm. Russia and Ukraine. That would get Putin's attention. And it's probably a better strategic move. You're not likely to see Ukrainians advance until probably April or May when the ground dries up. And they're also waiting for more troops trained in England and at U.S. sites in Germany. And hopefully those trained troops will be better than the ones that Frank was referring Just to. Just talking to. Correct. And also they're waiting for, for more uh, armored vehicles, more tanks. And I spoke about th this critical moment with the Pentagon's number three official, Colin Call. Let's listen. Look, I, I think momentum continues to be important, but mostly because Ukraine uh, needs to claw back as much territory uh, as they can. So it matters on the battlefield. I think there was a lot of speculation going into the winter that European support would soften. I've seen no indication of that. There's speculation in our own political system. I think there's still strong bipartisan support here. Hmm. 
Let me jump in and query that point, the strong bipartisan support. And I'll bring you in since you cover politics for us, Franco. What, what is the take here in D.C.? And start with the U.S. has sent so much money, so many weapons to Ukraine. Are they able to keep tabs on where it's going and whether it's working? I mean, they say they can. I mean, they do acknowledge that with that amount of money and that amount of weapons, that there are risks of those weapons ending up somewhere else that they don't want them to be. Now, they are clear to me that they have not seen any credible evidence of problems. Uh, but the administration is, you know, launching a bunch of reviews, doing a lot of oversight. Government auditors have been in Ukraine. Um, and I think that is kind of a sign of some of this concern about the bipartisan support because public sentiment is changing. You're also seeing a lot more Republicans speak out. And Congress has taken action. The House Oversight Committee sent a letter today to the Departments of State, Defense, USAID, asking for more documentation about all that spending. And the House Armed Services Committee is going to have a hearing next week. And what about the political stakes for the president? Joe Biden made clear he is all in by his presence in Ukraine this week. We think he is likely to run again. We know that foreign policy, a war in Ukraine, is not likely to be the thing that motivates a lot of voters to the ballot box. Yeah, I mean, domestic issues are absolutely going to be the priority in, you know, 2024 if he runs. And as you noted, we expect him to. You know, we saw that actually in his State of the Union address where he didn't talk about Ukraine till the second hour of his speech. But Biden has staked a lot of his credibility on supporting Ukraine, credibility, international credibility, and I'd argue also domestic credibility. You know, his message on this trip... Uh, was not just about the need to support Ukraine. It wasn't just about Ukraine. It was also about how it was in U.S. interest to stop Russia. You just asked me about money and weapons. What could become a domestic problem for Biden is if there is a scandal, if those weapons show up where they're not supposed to be. You know, folks here in the United States are already pretty weary about the U.S. economy, and it could turn into a big political fight if taxpayer money is not used properly or if it's misused. Used. That could be a real big domestic problem. Yeah. To the, to the point about weapons and when they will show up. Let me flip that back to you, Tom. There was a big call for tanks and now they're on the way. There's a big call now for air power for F-16s. We'll see. But None of it is arriving on the battlefield today or even tomorrow. What does that tell us? Well, weapons are still flowing in. The tanks will come from European countries, not the U.S., at least not for many months because those American tanks are still being built by industry. A big question is how many tanks and armored vehicles will arrive by that spring offensive. That's an uncertain and vital question. Now, they are getting a lot of artillery rounds and ammunition, and that can't come fast enough, Ukraine, because they're plowing through artillery rounds. Now, as far as F-16s, that keeps coming up. Ukraine, some defense analysts, uh, members of Congress are pushing the administration to send F-16s. The administration is saying no. The training on those takes six months. It's hugely expensive. And Ukraine can make better use of what we're sending now, which is armor, like the Bradley fighting vehicle, and also artillery rounds. Those are really, really key. You might see the F-16s years down the road when Ukraine kind of weans itself off Russian-made equipment and starts shifting to U.S. and NATO equipment. Frank Linkfit, I will give you last word there in Ukraine. And I want to let you respond to some of what we've just been hearing from colleagues here in Washington about the aid coming in, about weapons pouring in, but maybe not quite as fast as Ukraine would like. How do the prospects look 
for Ukraine's army? Well, in, in terms of the Donbass, I think because the Russian numbers are so big, people were talking to me about the idea of a tactical retreat. I was talking to a sniper by the name of Max. He's a member of that recon team that I was talking about. And he says what he expects is there'll be a tactical retreat where they try to bleed and exhaust the Russians, then mount a counteroffensive, as Tom was referring to, maybe in April or May. But Max was worried, and this is what he told me. If everything goes wrong, we will have to retreat to the other side of the Dnipro River. The Russians will have to be very well prepared to make the jump across the river. What is the chance that we end up with a partitioned Ukraine? 50-50, the same chance that we succeed. You know, that kind of struck me because it was so direct and so... I don't know, so honest, I suppose. I had to say, since I saw Max, which was about a week or so ago, he was actually caught in a big, heavy mortar barrage. Mm. He has shrapnel wounds to his legs. He's in the hospital for months, but he's a tough guy, and he's he's in good spirits. And Pierre's Frank Langfitt reporting there from Kiev. We've also been speaking with Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman and White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thanks to all three of you. You're welcome. Thank you. Good to talk, Mary Louise. Imagine a nightmare set in an art gallery, only it's real. I was pointing to this Jeff Koons balloon dog sculpture and showing my friend. And just as I said that, the piece fell over and it shattered into a thousand pieces. That is artist and collector Stephen Gamson describing what happened last week when someone bumped into the pedestal and the sculpture toppled at Art Winwood in Miami. It's chrome blue and looked like the kind of dog a clown might make from a balloon at a kid's birthday party, but made of porcelain. More people were crowding around and it just seemed almost like a, like kind of like a, how a car accident draws a big crowd. After another porcelain balloon dog was smashed to bits in 2016, Coons told Page Six it was not a big deal. He said, quote, it's a shame when anything like that happens, but you know, it's just a porcelain plate. Well, this dog-shaped plate attracted a lot of attention. As gallery crews came by with dustpans and boxes, Gamson started filming the aftermath on Instagram. If you want to sell the thing, that is Gamson asking gallery workers if he could buy a piece. Intact, the balloon dog sculpture is worth $42,000. No word on the price of pieces. Gamson says he's been collecting art since he was 17. I used to write letters to Keith Haring and uh, I, I became a pretty significant Keith Haring collector. I also have gone dumpster diving for art, you know, places where I know famous artists have worked, and I, I don't do that so much anymore. But <laughs> Gamson says he doesn't really have a plan for the pieces if he acquires them. I was thinking I might put them in, a, in some sort of a plexi box with a plaque on them. They could be introduced into a piece of art that I create myself. There, there's a lot of options. A pile of bright blue porcelain shards. Just the latest spin on that age-old question, is it art? Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518. And coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll hear about Democratic Senator John Tester of Montana's decision to run for a fourth term. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS.
In business news, the Wilmington-based firm Charles River Laboratories has been subpoenaed by the U.S. Department of Justice in connection with an investigation into monkey smuggling. As a result, the company announced today it has voluntarily suspended shipments of primates from Cambodia. It uses the animals for research. Charles River Labs says it expects constraints on its monkey supply to hurt its revenue growth. The company's shares fell 10 percent in trading today. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down 84 points, finishing at 33,045. The Nasdaq finished the day up 14 points, closing at 11,507. The S&P 500 closed down six points at 39.91. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. It is 42 degrees in Boston, and a wintry mix could make for some slippery conditions on the roads. You can expect a mix of snow, rain, sleet, and freezing rain tonight through tomorrow. Snowfall totals generally ranging from a coating to one inch or so from Boston down to the south shore and west to Worcester. And north of Boston and over the border to southern New Hampshire, it'll be more like two to four inches. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's day two of the big tech arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court. On one side are Twitter, Google, Facebook, and other major companies that provide interactive platforms for information. On the other side are the American families of people killed in terrorist attacks. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg is here to tell us about the arguments. Hey, Nina. Hey there, Ari. Remind us how we got here. Well, when the Internet was in its infancy, Congress passed in 1996 a law that granted interactive platforms virtual immunity from most civil lawsuits. But in 2016, Congress amended the Anti-Terrorism Act to allow civil claims against any entity that aids or abets or provides material support for an act of international terrorism. So the cases argued yesterday and today are testing what that means for these big companies, all of which have, to one degree or another, allowed material to be posted online by known terrorist groups, groups that were responsible for terrorist attacks that killed the relatives of the plaintiffs in these cases. So when you reported on the first day of arguments yesterday, I got the sense that the justices didn't seem especially inclined to revive these aiding and abetting cases that have been thrown out by the lower courts. Did the same seem to be true today? You know, it's a little hard to tell. 
Over two days, we've heard close to six hours of argument, very complex argument, and I have to admit, you could actually see people dozing in the courtroom at times. Hmm. But I thought the tone of today's argument was a bit different, less sympathetic to the tech companies. And today the justices were looking at the one case that the lower courts did not throw out and instead allowed the case to move forward to trial. It's a case against Twitter, indeed the pre-Elon Musk Twitter. The company is being accused of knowingly aiding terrorist groups by failing to aggressively enough remove the messages on its sites in violation of the Anti-Terrorism Act. Can you give us an example of that shift in tone you noted today? Um, Well, uh, Justice Thomas asked whether it would be aiding and abetting if he loaned a gun to a friend who was a murderer and a burglar. And Twitter's lawyer dodged the question, prompting this from Thomas. If I know to, to moral certainty the kind of person my friend is, would I have to be more specific than that? in order to be aiding and abetting uh, his criminal conduct. And Justice Sotomayor made a similar point. Willful blindness is something we have said uh, can constitute uh, knowledge. Justice Alito and Justice Kagan seem to resist the idea of throwing out these cases at an early stage. Instead, they seem to want to let them go to trial. Here's Alito. So what is substantial assistance? What's the difference between substantial and insubstantial assistance? So why aren't these uh, fact questions? Fact and value questions that liberal Justice Kagan seemed to say should be decided by a jury. But it seems to suggest that this should be a jury question, shouldn't it? So there's some resistance to throwing out these cases at an early stage, but you said yesterday the justices are also worried about these companies facing a wall of litigation in cases that might not ultimately be able to be proved. So how does this all shake out? Where are these folks headed? I honestly can't tell you. And this is one of those cases where um, the liberal conservative ideological splits just don't seem to play a role. The justices that I played cuts from were two conservatives and two liberals. NPR's Nina Totenberg, thank you. Thank you, Ari. A dozen dead whales have washed up on beaches in New York and New Jersey since December. Now, this is part of a trend in increased whale deaths all along the East Coast. And the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is trying to figure out what's going on. Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky is a reporter with member station WNYC. She is on this. She joins me now. Hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so help us figure out what do we know about what's going on? So we've had a number of dead whales washing up on our beaches in the last few months. The most recent one that I reported on was just last week on a beach in Queens. And the whale in that case had big wounds on its body. Noah says likely from a vessel strike. That's been the case for at least one other whale that washed up in recent weeks. Yeah. And this has actually been going on for a while, for years. Is that right? Yeah, so NOAA has been tracking what they call unusual mortality events since 2016, and that's their term for when they notice marine mammals dying off in an unexpected and significant way. Right now, they have them for humpback whales, North Atlantic right whales, and minke whales on the East Coast. And they say that a lot of these deaths are due to getting hit by ships or tangled up in nets, although not 100 percent. Yeah, I want to bring in one other thing that's that's happening right now, which is that over the weekend, there was a large protest in New Jersey. This was in connection with the whale deaths and the protesters were calling for a stop to offshore wind development. Um, 
What is the connection? Is there a connection between whale deaths and offshore wind? So experts say there isn't one. Here's Kim Damon Randall from NOAA speaking to WMYC earlier this month. At this point, there's no evidence to support speculation that noise generated from wind development surveys could potentially cause mortality of whales. But some groups have tried to link the deaths to the wind energy prep work that's being done in New York and New Jersey waters right now. Local politicians have also gotten involved, and they claim that the sound of the boats might confuse the whales. And that's even though it's been reported that the wind surveying is actually less noisy than fossil fuel exploration. Hmm. So what else do we know about these protesters? So my colleague Nancy Solomon looked into them. She found that some of the people making this claim do belong to an environmental group, but others are just anti-wind power. So she discovered that one organization called Protect Our Coast NJ is actually connected to a conservative think tank with a long history of opposing clean energy. Okay, let me circle us back to the central question, which is what is going on? What is driving this? If it is not likely offshore wind development, what is it? So there's no one answer, although experts do have some theories. One is that whales may be following their prey into waters with more boat traffic. And Kim Damon Randall says that could be in part because of climate change. We know that climate's um, changing, uh, and one of the changes is warming of our oceans. Um, so in response to this, we are seeing populations move around and go into areas that they haven't historically been in. And then the other thing to consider is that there may be more of some whales than there were before. So our local humpbacks in particular are no longer considered endangered because their population has grown, and more whales can mean more vessel strikes. Huh. So can anything be done to help the whales, to, to stop them getting hit by ships? Well, NOAA's going to keep tracking them, and big boats are also being instructed to go slow in major ports in that area during winter and spring to reduce the odds of hitting a whale. NOAA's also trying to extend those rules to include smaller boats as well. And as for the anti-wind advocates, a couple of Republican congressmen from New Jersey are proposing pausing the offshore wind development and looking into how it got approved in the first place. But New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says the work will continue. Jacqueline Jeffrey Walensky with member station WNYC. Thanks for your reporting. Thanks. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Gulchera Hoja hadn't seen her family in years until they turned up on Chinese state TV. After many years, I saw their face. I was just happy to see them. Her own mother had been brought on TV to denounce her. A Uyghur woman's story, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Pentagon is once again warning China against providing lethal assistance to Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh says any such move would be met with severe consequences. Lethal aid to Russia continuing to um, support Russia while this war in Ukraine um, is ongoing is just not something that we support. It's certainly not something that uh, the international community supports when you have um, the broad array of, uh, you know, over 50 countries at the Ukrainian defense contact group supporting Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin held talks with China's top diplomat in Moscow today. According to a Chinese statement, the two sides pledged to strengthen their coordination. Beijing has maintained close ties with Moscow and has never condemned the invasion. Two days before the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Pope Francis is calling for a ceasefire and peace talks. NPR Silvia Poggioli reports from Rome. The Pope called this a sad anniversary of an absurd and cruel war. The number of dead, wounded refugees and displaced people, Francis said, the destruction and economic and social damage speak for themselves. Pope Francis has appealed for an end of violence in Ukraine in nearly every public appearance over the last year, and his condemnation of Russia has escalated over that time. Speaking during his weekly general audience at the Vatican, Francis said, let us ask ourselves, has everything possible been done to stop the war? I appeal to everyone who has authority over nations, he added, to work to end the conflict, to reach a ceasefire and start peace negotiations. Silvia Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Newly released court documents suggest the largest drug lab scandal in U.S. history may become even larger. The documents indicate that misconduct at the now-closed Hinton Drug Lab in Jamaica Plain was more widespread than state officials have acknowledged. A defense attorney is asking for a federal investigation. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. State officials have long maintained that only former chemist Annie Dukon falsified drug tests before her conviction a decade ago. But the new court documents identify at least four other Hinton Lab employees who may have also engaged in misconduct. Defense attorney Greg Batten has asked U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins to look into possible charges against former state officials, including the Inspector General, former Attorney General Martha Coakley, and former AG, now Governor Maura Healey. Without that investigation. I don't know where the criminal justice system stands at this point in time. Batten says the courts should toss out more convictions than the tens of thousands that were already vacated because of the scandal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Some critics have compared Boston unfavorably to other major metropolitan areas such as New York and Miami, calling Boston the city that always sleeps. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports Boston is hiring a new director for nightlife economy, trying to push that bedtime back a bit. Mayor Michelle Wu says a vibrant nightlife is key to a healthy economy. She's tapped Kareen Reynolds from the Boston Foundation to come up with ideas to keep people up later. Reynolds says people don't have many options now for staying out past midnight. There needs to be more than bars. There, I love that the city prides itself on its sports and its and its pubs, but what else do we have to offer? 
Reynolds says she wants to support more events like the popular new Little Saigon Night Market in Dorchester. The city plans to start with a focus on downtown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A musical adaptation of The Great Gatsby will make its world premiere in Cambridge next year. The musical's being produced at the American Repertory Theater. The production, titled Gatsby, is directed by Tony Award winner Rachel Chafkin. It will feature music by Grammy-nominated artists, including Florence Welch of the band Florence and the Machine. It's 42 degrees in Boston, and a wintry mix is on the way. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There are two ways of looking at the situation in East Palestine, Ohio. That's where a train derailed spilling hazardous chemicals more than two weeks ago. On one hand, the Environmental Protection Agency has been testing the air and water and says it has not detected levels of concern. Josh Shapiro is governor of neighboring Pennsylvania and spoke with NPR this morning. I've authorized testing of all of the wells on the Pennsylvania side and the public water system to ensure that local residents have the comfort of knowing what's coming out of the tap is safe. We've seen no concerning readings yet, but we're going to continue to test for months and months and months, if not years. On the other hand, people who live in the area are reporting nausea, headaches, red eyes, and rashes. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has opened a clinic in town to address those concerns. Dr. Nicholas Proya is a pulmonologist in the area and a professor at Northeastern Ohio Medical University not far from East Palestine. Thank you for joining us. Sure thing. What are doctors in East Palestine telling you about how things are there right now? You know, frankly, there aren't very many practices centered in East Palestine. It's a a pretty small town. Um, The largest city is just north of East Palestine. It's Youngstown. um, And there's another community hospital nearby in Salem, Ohio. And the practitioners down in that area have been very wary looking for signs of any type of um, disease. And what they've been telling me is they have not seen a whole lot of respiratory disease other than something they perhaps could attribute to something like a viral infection. They have seen some skin issues, but obviously as a pulmonologist, I'm more interested in the respiratory issues. And and frankly, talking to the local emergency rooms, they haven't seen that substantial an increase in visits as a result of that. All right. So if and when skin or respiratory diseases do arise, are there ways to tell if that is related to these chemicals or caused by something else? You know, that's going to be tough to do. I can't speak to skin being um, a pulmonologist, but uh, what generally a toxic exposure will precipitate is something we call the reactive airways dysfunction syndrome. It's almost like uh, a bout of asthma that comes out of nowhere and perhaps a non-asthmatic. Obviously, if you do have underlying lung disease, you're going to be at greater risk for a worse outcome. But what you would see is coughing, wheezing, and perhaps some mucus production, just reflecting irritation of the airway itself. And given that it's been about two weeks since the spill, would you expect to see those symptoms by now, or could they be longer term? 
you know, unless there's an ongoing exposure, perhaps in a closed space, I would have expected, especially because the weather here shortly after um, the controlled burn was rather windy, um, and that helped obviously dissipate much of the cloud that was there. Um, I don't expect to see much in the future unless, like I said, there's a closed space that has not been uh, aerated. Well, this sounds like good news. Of course, people don't necessarily trust institutions. They may not believe what the EPA or government officials say. So what would you tell people living in the area? What would you tell patients in this moment of uncertainty? Just be vigilant. Personally, if I had a home in East Palestine, I would be more concerned about any contaminated groundwater. Some of the gases that were released are heavier than air and would tend to infiltrate um, the ground, etc. The gas that was burned is vinyl chloride, which is volatile, obviously, and that's how it, how it burned. And it probably moved out relatively quickly. Any toxic exposure secondary to vinyl chloride would have been transient, and I don't think we're going to see anything now. We heard Pennsylvania Governor Shapiro talking about testing well water. What are you going to be watching for in the weeks and months to come? From a pulmonary standpoint, I'm going to be watching for any spike in respiratory disease. Um, it's probably, I think, usually when you have something like the reactive airways dysfunction syndrome, that's an acute illness. Patients would have presented to the emergency room almost immediately. Now, um, before the evacuation order, there were some patients who were seen in emergency rooms after a toxic exposure, and that kind of makes sense. After the uh, evacuation order, that number dropped off considerably. You're talking about a potential spike in respiratory disease, and we're having this conversation as the country has already dealt with a triple whammy of COVID, the flu, and RSV, all of which can manifest as respiratory diseases. Exactly, and as can any other virus that's out there. Um, we've had a particularly warm uh, winter in Northeast Ohio, and actually the incidence of respiratory disease, because uh, people aren't gathered in closed spaces, um, has gone down considerably in Northeast Ohio this, this time of the year. Dr. Nicholas Proya, he's clinical professor of internal medicine at Northeastern Ohio Medical University. Thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Archaeologists have discovered evidence of a type of skull surgery dating back to the Bronze Age that's similar to a procedure still being used today. Science reporter Ari Daniel has more. Some 3,500 years ago, the town of Megiddo, currently in northern Israel, was a thriving center of trade. It was already quite influential and powerful in the region. Today, it's the site of a major excavation, one that Rachel Kalisher, a bioarchaeologist and PhD student at Brown University, has visited often. One day, she was there cleaning out the skull of an adult male. With dental tools and maybe a paintbrush, but really manual removal of dirt. And I see this giant trephination in it. Vocab alert, trephination, a hole made by a surgical procedure where a piece of the skull is removed to relieve pressure from the head. As a way of treating, or attempting to treat at the time, epilepsy, seizures, and more. It was a square hole about the size of a large postage stamp. It looked so fresh and so sharp, and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. This hole was made in the man's skull when he was still alive, and the way it was made was rare. 
Trephinations date back thousands of years to the Neolithic period, but this is the earliest example of this technique in the region by at least several centuries. Today, a similar procedure called a craniotomy is used to treat brain tumors, aneurysms, and other problems. Below the man's skull, his bones were marked by lesions, consistent with an infectious disease like tuberculosis or leprosy. Kalisher speculates the trephination was an intervention for his declining condition. So that individual from head to toe had a lot going on. And sadly, he didn't survive long after the procedure. The man was buried beside someone else, whose bones also had lesions. Earlier DNA analysis revealed it was his younger brother. This is just a really good example of collaborative work that's using as many lines of inquiry as possible. Asia Lance is a bioarchaeologist at Harvard University and wasn't involved in the research. And they're doing a very good job of putting it together with the actual, like, historical context of the site in the Bronze Age. Now, when these two brothers died, they weren't shunned due to their illness. Rather, says Rachel Kalisher, they were honored with a shared grave alongside food offerings and fine ceramics. I think that it really illustrates the humanity of whoever buried them. It's a special moment for Kalisher when all these fragments of bone assemble into a story of a people who lived and died long ago. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Both the branded and generic versions of Adderall have been in short supply since October. It's a drug that treats attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. NPR's Sydney Lupkin reports the shortfall is having a serious impact on patients and the people around them. Christina Yaris is the kind of mom who's hesitant to let her kids take too many medications. But when her 8-year-old started taking Adderall, she couldn't deny that his ADHD symptoms got better right away. He was getting, you know, finally able to get like smiley faces coming home and all of that. So he was super excited because he wasn't the trouble kid anymore. He wasn't in trouble. He was actually getting rewarded. Then she went to the pharmacy to refill his prescription, but the medicine was out of stock. She went down a list of pharmacies and asked her mom to make calls, too. They couldn't find it anywhere. The minute we ran out of it, he was back to, you know, getting in trouble every day, getting up out of his seat. The teachers immediately noticed that he was off of it. The Adderall shortage started as a production issue at Teva, one of the world's largest drug makers. It makes generic and brand name Adderall. Many makers of the drug have told the Food and Drug Administration they've been unable to keep up with the demand. Some manufacturers say they're having problems getting a key ingredient. Adderall is an amphetamine. It's classified as a controlled substance by the Drug Enforcement Administration, which limits the amount of raw ingredients companies can get to manufacture Adderall. I asked Aaron Fox, a nationally recognized expert on drug shortages, what's going on. There's a lot of finger pointing. So, you know, a lot of the companies tell us that the reason they can't have full availability is because of DEA quotas, but DEA (laughs) says that the companies haven't used all of their quota and they're not going to increase it. And DEA says they're getting their information from the companies. She says the companies are secretive about the details, and she says it's frustrating that the FDA can't force the companies to explain. 
Teva, for its part, says it's working to meet the historic demand. Brand name Adderall is no longer officially in shortage. But generics, which most people are taking, are expected to be on back order until the spring. Dr. Max Wisnitzer is a pediatric neurologist at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. We get calls every day about people being unable to get their medication and what they should do. On average, it's at least three to six. Sometimes it's 10 or 12. And it's been a constant trend even to today, where I've already taken care of two or three circumstances like that. He's had to be creative to make sure patients get what they need. Sometimes that's a different strength pill or a longer or shorter acting one. Sometimes he prescribes a different drug altogether, like Ritalin. But even that's been in shortage. Wisnitzer says even without the shortage, there's never been such high demand for these drugs. During the pandemic, we have these kids at home whose parents finally are seeing the ADHD behaviors and how they impact their school performance that they would not have seen in the past. Number two is the increased recognition of adult ADHD. Lisa wetzel Trainer is a New Jersey-based writer with ADHD. She managed to avoid the shortage until this week when her pharmacy couldn't fill her prescription. And I literally got out of there and sat in my car and just cried. For now, she plans to ration her pills, but she's worried. She depends on Adderall to keep her on track. And now in my adulthood, I think that's part of the panic, too. It's like, am I going to start slipping, you know, in my career? Am I going to start going backwards? She hopes the shortage will end soon, before her pills run out. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 548, and coming up in about 15 or so minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a conversation with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. But first, you'll get a profile of Angela Bassett. She's been nominated for an Oscar for her role in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. That and more are still ahead on All Things Considered. Join WBUR Consalsa host Jose Maso Friday, March 10th at City Space for an evening of live salsa music along with dancing and conversation. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 42 degrees in Boston with some precipitation moving into the region. Roads could get slick. Use extra caution as you deal with this wintry mix. You can expect a mix of snow, rain, sleet, and freezing rain tonight through tomorrow. Snowfall totals generally ranging from about a coating to one inch or so for Boston down to the south shore and west to Worcester. North of Boston, more like two to four inches. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston. Anyone can wear the mask. You could wear the mask. If you didn't know that before, I hope you do now. Local artists highlight black superheroes and black comic creators. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 
And I'm Ari Shapiro. A dirt farmer and Montana's only statewide elected Democrat will seek re-election to the U.S. Senate. John Tester's campaign launch boosts Democrats' hopes of holding on to their slim Senate majority in 2024. Montana Public Radio's Austin Amistoy reports. It is great to be back with you today to speak a little bit about how we can better serve our bosses, the people of Montana. Days before announcing his fourth run for the U.S. Senate, John Tester addressed a joint session of the Montana legislature. He struck a moderate tone, appealing to his base and saying he'll stand up to President Biden on issues like securing the southern border and constructing the Keystone XL oil pipeline. I will always take on anyone to defend Montana values and do what's right for our state. In recent years, Tester has done what many other Democrats haven't been able to do, win in rural conservative states. In Montana, a state Donald Trump carried twice by double-digit margins, Tester was narrowly re-elected in 2018, despite Trump visiting the state four times to campaign against him. The Cook Political Report rates Montana's 2024 Senate race as lean Democrat, with Tester in the contest. Lee Banville is a journalism professor and political analyst at the University of Montana. It was obviously going to be a highly anticipated decision by uh, Senator Tester whether to run again, because the alternative was really unclear. Banville says Tester's bid to retain his seat will test his ability to reach a new landscape of Montana voters. When Tester won his first Senate race in 2006, Montana had a Democratic governor and was known for its power sharing between the parties. Now, though, Republicans hold a historic supermajority in the state legislature and have pushed Democrats out of all other statewide elected positions. Tester's latest bid gives Democrats with dwindling control in Montana hopes of keeping a foothold in Congress. Democrats hold the majority in the U.S. Senate by just a single seat and have twice as many incumbent positions up for re-election in 2024 than Republicans. The National Republican Senatorial Committee, led by Tester's counterpart from Montana, Senator Steve Daines, already released a statement attacking Tester by linking him with President Joe Biden and blaming the duo for an uptick of crime and fentanyl distribution in Montana. Banville says Tester's entrance gives Democrats a better chance, but Tester always runs a close race. But I will tell you, it will be a, a, a large battle in the state of Montana to uh, see if Tester can win re-election again. Tester has never won by more than four points. For NPR News, I'm Austin Amistoy in Missoula, Montana. Angela Bassett is a contender for this year's Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role in the Black Panther sequel, Wakanda Forever. If she wins, she would become the first actor from any Marvel movie to win an Academy Award. NPR's Mandalay Del Barco reports. Angela Bassett plays Wakanda's Queen Ramonda, who has lost her son T'Challa, the Black Panther. Then in this film, her daughter Shuri is taken away to an underwater kingdom. So her fury is understandable. I am queen of the most powerful nation in the world, and my entire family is gone! She is mother, and she is queen, and she is strong, and she is vulnerable, and she's not so removed from, from anything. Woman. In person, Bassett is just as regal as Queen Ramonda. After a special screening by the Film Academy, she gestures gracefully with her hands as she talks about her Oscar nomination. Oh, you know, be careful what you ask for. It is a blessing, but it is a lift. It is a lift. But as word says, to whom much is given, much is required, and a lot is required. On screen, Bassett has made a career of portraying women who are strong in many ways. Rosa Parks, Betty Shabazz, Coretta Scott King, Michelle Obama's voice, and powerhouse singer Tina Turner. I'm ready. I'm ready, and I know what I want. Oh, what's up? Got to do, got to do 
Bassett earned her first Oscar nomination for that role in the 1993 film What's Love Got to Do With It? She says she's blessed to have played so many of her real-life heroes. They're women who have sacrificed, women who've been an inspiration, whether it's Rosa Parks, the seemingly simple women who, at their core, they're extraordinarily strong. You know, they're very intelligent women, uh, very driven, very caring. Or Tina, you know, just someone who can lose or give up what seems to be a great deal and still rise like a phoenix. Bassett was born in New York in 1958 and grew up in North Carolina, then St. Petersburg, Florida. She lived there with her single mother and was bused to school across town along with other black children in her neighborhood. We were at that time where you were run outside and say, you know, black people on TV when the Supremes were, you know, appearing on the Ed Sullivan show. Bassett remembers dancing to the Jackson Five, whose mother, Catherine, she would later portray on a TV miniseries. As a teen, she went on a trip to Washington, D.C. with the group Upward Bound and was mesmerized by a play they went to see. There's this black man on stage in Steinbeck's A Mice and Men, James Earl Jones, and I literally, I'm the last one in the theater, you know, as they're cleaning up, and I'm sitting there bawling my eyes out because I so believe that he had been shot. I, I thought, oh my gosh, if I could, I could make people feel the way I feel right now, which is toe up from the flow up. <laughs> so she studied at the Yale School of Drama, where she met classmate Courtney Vance, another actor who she would marry years later. On stage in New York, she was in some August Wilson plays, but her big break was in John Singleton's 1991 movie Boys in the Hood. In this scene, her character confronts her son's father, played by Lawrence Fishburne. It's my time to talk. Of course you took in your son, my son, our son. And you taught him what he needed to be a man. I'll give you that, because most men ain't man enough to do what you did. But that gives you no reason, do you hear me? No reason to tell me that I can't be a mother to my son. What you did is no different from what mothers have been doing from the beginning of time. It's just too bad more brothers won't do the same. That's my girl. There she is. Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter has worked on seven of Bassett's films. What's Love Got to Do With It? Malcolm X, Waiting to Exhale, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, Chirac, and the two Black Panther films. For a black woman to be in this industry and to have lasted as long as she has and to have played so many amazing roles, then also to have a family, to have kids, to have, you know, a lovely husband. You know, she's a full package here. Black Panther director Ryan Coogler says he grew up watching Bassett's films with his mother and his aunts. Particularly was aware of the effect that she had on the women in my family. But everybody loves Angela. Men love Angela. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, like she's like a national treasure. You know what I mean? Coogler says he's honored that Bassett played Wakanda's queen. He says after lead actor Chadwick Boseman died, Bassett was a calm anchor for the cast and crew. He says the way she delivered one key line to T'Challa in the first film stays with him. And it is your time to be king. She was like, yo, it's your time to be king. And I was like, I felt myself kind of like stand up, <laughs> stand up straighter. It was like she was talking to you? Like she's talking to everybody. Lift me up. Coogler and Carter say this award season, after a long career on stage, TV, and film, it's Angela Bassett's time to receive her crown. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. Sit.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. And remember, you can catch up on key stories with the Common Podcast. Reina Morales Rojas of East Boston has been missing for three months, and it took Boston police more than six weeks to announce her case, and it received little public attention. The Common Podcast explores that. You can find WBUR's The Common in your podcast app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A year into the war in Ukraine, the U.S. has doubled down on its commitment to help the country resist Russian forces. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin weighs in. As Ukraine uh, works to hold its ground, it's also building combat power. It's Wednesday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. As many as 55,000 formerly incarcerated people in Minnesota will become eligible to vote under a bill about to become law. It's part of a voting access push in a state where Democrats call the shots. Also, you'll take a look at what the Kroger grocery chain is doing with the data it collects about customers in its loyalty program. And you'll hear about baklava after the earthquake in Turkey. At 6.30, it's Marketplace. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is heading back to the U.S. after a whirlwind visit to Poland and Ukraine. NPR's Asma Khalid reports he made the trip to reaffirm the U.S. commitment to NATO and the war in Ukraine. Biden met with the leaders of the Bucharest Nine before flying home. This is a group of countries on the eastern flank of NATO that banded together in 2015 following Russia's annexation of Crimea the year prior. As NATO's eastern flank, you're on the front lines of our collective defense, and you know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict. Biden spoke about the strength of NATO in the face of Russian aggression. Separately, when Biden was asked about Russian President Vladimir Putin's move to suspend participation in the last remaining nuclear weapons treaty between the U.S. and Russia, he called it a big mistake. 
Asma Khalid, NPR News. The Interior Department is proposing its first ever lease for wind energy production in the Gulf of Mexico. From member station WWNO, Haley Parker reports it's part of the Biden administration's pledge to ramp up the wind energy production of the country's coast by 2030. The Gulf of Mexico has a long legacy of oil and gas production, but soon it could see its first wind farm. The Department of the Interior wants to lease just more than 300,000 acres off of Louisiana and Texas's shores. Agency officials say the area has the potential to power 1.3 million homes. Industry and environmental groups alike applauded the proposal, calling it a major milestone toward developing clean energy in the Gulf. The Department of Interior will open a 60-day period for public comment later this month before deciding whether it will open the sale for bids. For NPR News, I'm Hallie Parker in New Orleans. Provision in the 1996 law overhauling the nation's telecommunications rules has had a major effect on companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Supreme Court is now looking at two cases challenging a law in place, known as Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Minutes from the Federal Reserve's most recent policy session offer new insights into how the central bank is approaching inflation. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Fed has raised interest rates aggressively. The Fed has raised interest rates eight times since March, including its most recent rate hike of a quarter percentage point earlier this month. The vote for that rate increase was unanimous, but newly released minutes show a few members of the rate-setting committee were willing to go even faster and boost borrowing costs by a half percentage point instead. The Fed has telegraphed that additional rate hikes are likely. Investors now expect that interest rates will stay higher for longer than they were anticipating just a few weeks ago. Some Fed officials think that as consumers become more price sensitive, businesses will be forced to cut their profit margins. That could also help to bring down inflation. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 84 points. The Nasdaq up 14. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston Medical Center will soon stop providing clinical addiction services at a former hotel in the area of the city known as Mass and Cass. The program started early last year as the city worked to clear out a tent encampment in the area because of public health and safety concerns. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more. BMC says it will end its urgent care-type addiction services at the Roundhouse Hotel due to a lack of long-term funding. Steve Fox chairs the South End Forum, which represents neighborhood associations in the area. He thinks such programs should operate away from Mass and Cass because it has a concentration of addiction and homeless services and a major drug market. I hate to see any addiction treatment program shut down. But it needs to be in a location where people have a fighting chance to actually build a recovery. BMC also operates 60 transitional housing beds in the former hotel under contract with the city through June. The city says it's evaluating options to continue providing services there or at another location. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. On Interstate 495 in Chelmsford, transportation officials are working to remove a trailer carrying a new MBTA Orange Line car. The oversized shipment en route to Medford came loose from its tow vehicle last night. It's been on the highway ever since. Because of the ongoing work, several lanes of 495 North are closed at Route 3, along with the exits from 495 North to Route 3 North and the Lowell Connector. 
Advocates for Native Americans are encouraging the state legislature to pass a bill that would prohibit public schools in Massachusetts from using mascots that depict Native Americans. Penny Gamble-Williams is an elder of the Chappaquiddick tribe of the Wampanoag Nation. She says mascots are one example of the way schools can harm Native students, and she recalls how a teacher dismissed her own essay about the summer she spent with extended family. The teacher walked over to me and firmly put her hand on my shoulder and said, it's not nice to tell stories like this. You know all the New England Indians are dead. I never want that to happen to any other child. Gamble Williams says Native students should not have to explain that they exist, and she says adopting the bill would be a step in a better direction. In the forecast, some wintry weather is arriving. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce expects roads to be slippery. A little bit of everything out there. Snow continues to fill in and ramp up with the rain snow line making slow northward progress. In between, it's areas of sleet and freezing rain mixing in too. This wintry mix will continue overnight into tomorrow morning, which will slow things down for the morning commute. Snow totals, coating possible on the Cape, an inch or two for the South Shore, Boston, and surrounding suburbs. But north of the city, into southern New Hampshire, it's two to four inches. Light freezing drizzle is going to make travel slick through tomorrow into early Friday, especially north and west of town. Friday, colder air arrives and we won't get out of the 20s on Saturday with a chance of snow showers this weekend. It's 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. When President Joe Biden made a secret visit to Ukraine this week, he recalled a grim prediction. One year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kiev. Seems like a lot longer ago than a year, but think back to that year. Perhaps even the end of Ukraine. Some U.S. intelligence officials were also privately making that prediction. Now, the Biden administration has doubled down on its commitment to help Ukraine resist Russian forces. So nearly a year into this war, how might it come to an end? Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin joins us from the Pentagon to talk about that. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ari. Great to be here. Let's start with that visit President Biden made to Ukraine. He committed nearly half a billion dollars in additional military aid. You also visited last week with Ukrainian soldiers who were trained by U.S. forces in Germany. Do you expect this support to dramatically change the situation on the battlefield? Are we about to see Ukraine make major advances? We uh, would certainly hope that they'll be able to achieve uh, their objectives, their tactical and operational objectives. Our goal, Ari, is to put them in the best uh, possible position to do that. Uh, You've uh, heard the president say a number of times that... uh, we're going to continue to support uh, Ukraine uh, and provide them the, the means to uh, protect their sovereign territory for uh, as long as it takes. The kinds of things that we're providing, Bradley uh, fighting vehicles, strikers, which is also an infantry fighting vehicle. Our allies and partners are also stepping up to the plate. Germany's providing martyrs. Uh, Sweden is providing a CV-90, which is a infantry fighting vehicle as well, and the list goes on. So. We're not only providing platforms, we're also providing training uh, on those platforms and training on combined arms maneuver, which I think will make a significant difference. If if the goal, though, is to put Ukraine 
in the best possible position to achieve its military goals, as you say, then why not grant their requests for longer-range artillery, for F-16 planes, for some of the other things they've asked for that the U.S. has said no to? Again, their most pressing need right now is uh, air defense capability uh, and, uh, and artillery and the kinds of platforms, the armor platforms that we're providing. Uh, and so their next uh, offensive operation is going to take place sometime in the spring, and, and that is mere weeks from now. And so we're doing everything that, that we can to make sure that they have relevant capability uh, to be successful in, in that upcoming fight. Let's talk about that upcoming offensive, because there is an expectation that both Russia and Ukraine are going to make a real push in the spring. And there is some question as to whether Russia has already begun its offensive. What do you expect the next month or two to look like? Well, as we've seen for the last several weeks, uh, the fighting around the Bakhmut area has been uh, pretty intense. Uh, Russia continues to pour in uh, large numbers of troops that are ill-trained and ill-equipped. Uh, and in many cases, those troops are uh, meeting their, their demise in, in short order. And so we can expect to see more of that. And uh, I expect that the Ukrainians will uh, continue to uh, do everything uh, within their means to, to hold the ground. They've done a great job of that thus far. When you but say you built... expect to see more of this in the next couple of months, do you mean more of a stalemate? Do you mean this fighting in Bakhmut is just going to drag on? Is that what the spring offensive looks like? As Ukraine... Uh, works to, uh, to hold, uh, hold its ground, it's also building combat power. So I think that that will provide uh, Ukraine an opportunity to begin to change the dynamics on the battlefield. And by the way, uh, all of our allies and partners that are part of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, and there's some 50 countries that, uh, that participate in that, uh, they're bellying up to the bar and they're providing uh, uh, support uh, in every way possible. Well, you say that the contact group is holding United Front, but the Spanish prime minister says it's time for Ukraine to negotiate with Russia. I mean, if Ukraine does not achieve a remarkable success on the battlefield, do you anticipate those calls to negotiate growing? Well, I, uh, again, I, I can't predict uh, one way or the other how countries are going to view this post, uh, post-offensive. If there is an, uh, some sort of negotiation in the future, uh, Ukraine will have a strong hand at the at the, at the uh, negotiating table. You mentioned that Russia has been pouring in large numbers of ill-trained, ill-equipped troops. Uh, according to the UK, Russia now has 200,000 casualties. That's dead and wounded. Um, they've apparently lost half their tanks, a third of their armored personnel carriers. Could you see the Russian military collapsing? How bad is it right now for Russia? I, I don't see it collapsing, uh, but I do see them continuing to be challenged going forward. And I think as, as Ukraine develops the capability that we're working on right now, they'll have the ability to maneuver and, uh, and take back uh, ground in the same fashion that you saw them do in Kharkiv uh, months ago. Uh, you'll recall that when they started that operation, they maneuvered very quickly and, and rolled up a lot of terrain that was previously occupied by, by Russia. This all builds up to what may be the most important question. How does this end? Well, I, I think... Uh, Again, you know, we're going to focus on, you know, what's in front of us right now and, and put them in the best possible position to continue to be successful. And I think uh, that'll lead us to, uh, uh, to um, Ukraine being, in a, again, a good, a good place, whether or not they, the fighting continues or whether or not they, they decide to go to the negotiating table. Well, uh, to be specific, 
Back in November, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley said, Ukraine cannot achieve the goal of kicking all the Russians out of the country, including Crimea. Do you think he's right about that? I, I don't want to speculate at this point. I think, you know, my goal is to provide them uh, uh, the capabilities required to achieve their objectives. And that's what me and the chairman are going to continue to stay focused on. Well, their uh, objective you know, specifically is to drive all the Russians out. Is the U.S. goal to help Ukraine drive all the Russians out? Or is the U.S. goal to help Ukraine get to a strong negotiating position? Well, I mean, they can be driven out or Putin can decide to take his forces back out of Ukraine because he's in such a bad position. Uh, and, uh, and that could happen as well. Uh, it could end this today, Ari. And we all know that, that this, is, this war uh, is happening because of one man. One man's desire to erase his... Uh, his neighbor's boundaries and, you know, occupy uh, his neighbor's territory. And this is, uh, again, unjustified, uh, unprovoked. Uh, and, uh, and Putin could end this at any point in time in the future. If Russia were to retreat to where it was before the full-scale invasion a year ago, meaning it hangs on to Crimea, it remains in parts of eastern Ukraine, would the U.S. consider that a Ukrainian victory and urge Ukraine to end the war at that? U Ukraine's going to decide uh, what victory is going to look like, uh, Ari and and uh, so I, I don't want to speak for President Zelensky or or the Ukrainian people. I think that's for that's for them to decide. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking with us from the Pentagon. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Ari. Real pleasure to be here with you. As many as 55,000 formerly incarcerated people in Minnesota will become eligible to vote under a bill that's about to become law. It's part of a broader voting access push in a state where Democrats now fully call the shots. Brian Baxt of member station NPR News reports. Even with a major snowstorm bearing down, a large contingent showed up at the state capitol to urge passage of a law giving Minnesota felons a right to vote after leaving custody. Since the 1960s, parole and probation have disqualified thousands of people. 55,000 people! 55,000 people! Non-incarcerated felons locked out of voting in Minnesota tried to regain access in the courts, but failed. A legislative push 20 years in the making ultimately succeeded last night, propelled forward in a state house now fully in Democratic control. Lawmakers sent the felon voting bill to Governor Tim Walz, who plans to sign it next week. We should not continue to perpetually punish individuals. Senate President Bobby Joe Champion represents a diverse Minneapolis district and helped lead the drive. He says denying voter eligibility shoves felons trying to rebuild their lives to the side and does little to further public safety. We know that when people do structured and pro-social things, that good things happen. And why should we deny someone the right to vote? We want them to be connected to the community and a part of the fabric of our community. But most Republicans say with crime a concern, it's the wrong time to reduce consequences. And they sought to keep restrictions for people convicted of election fraud, sex crimes, and murder. Senator Andrew Matthews says there needs to be distinctions, like in Delaware and Florida. People that commit the crime of murder or manslaughter 
they have permanently taken away their victims' right to vote. Minnesota will join 21 states in automatically granting voting rights after incarceration ends. Community organizer Janae Bates, who led those chants in the Capitol hallways, says it's personal. Her husband is currently serving time, and she predicts the Minnesota law will invite people back to the polls beyond those made newly eligible. Because there's a lot of folks who actually can vote. They're off of probation, off of papers, and they don't realize that they have the right to vote. Democratic Secretary of State Steve Simon says his team is ready to do its part. This is a really big law change, so we're going to be there with our nonpartisan voter outreach folks, making sure everyone gets word. Other proposals before Minnesota's legislature go hand in hand. Lawmakers could soon make voter registration automatic upon issuance of a driver's license or application for government programs. Advocates say that step will take one more hurdle out of the way for people who haven't had the chance to vote due to their past. For NPR News, I'm Brian Baxt in St. Paul, Minnesota. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 619 and at 630, it's Marketplace. You'll hear about the industry sector beyond non-alcoholic beer. Non-alcoholic cocktails are making their mark. Plus, 16% of school principals quit or retired in the 2021-22 school year. You will consider how the job of school principal is changing and what it might take to keep principals in the profession. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. On Wall Street, today the Dow closed down 84 points, finishing at 33,045. The Nasdaq finished the day up 14 points, closing at 11,507. The S&P 500 is down 6 points, closing at 39.91. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales' Fuss Family Health Initiative a philanthropic and community service initiative dedicated to helping to ease the mental health crisis facing youth in under-resourced communities by raising awareness, reducing stigmas, and supporting the many young people who feel alone as they grapple with mental health challenges. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. It's 41 degrees in Boston, and it is a wintry mix kind of forecast, a mix of snow, rain, sleet, and freezing rain tonight through tomorrow in the region, and that could make for some slippery conditions for travel, so use extra caution. Snowfall totals generally will range from a coating to one inch or so for Boston down to the South Shore and west to Worcester. North of Boston, over the border to southern New Hampshire, it could be more like two to four inches. This is 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Nearly every major grocery store chain has a loyalty program. You get discounts and rewards. The store gets information about what you buy. So what exactly happens to that information? Reporter John Keegan of The Markup investigated the Kroger grocery chain, and he found that customer data is worth a lot of money 
and the information collected goes way beyond what you buy. John Keegan, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Start by explaining what kind of data Kroger collects and how they gather it. Sure. So the kinds of information, what they do is, you you know, you have to sign up for a loyalty program card, right? And when you do that, you are sharing some personal information with the company. You're giving them your name, your phone number, your email address, probably your mailing address. That information is then taken and enriched. What they do is they go out to third-party data brokers, and they will take that information you gave them and kind of use it as a key to create a broader profile of who you are as a shopper. This can include demographic information about your race and ethnicity, your financial information, your employment status, and even some of your online browsing activity. So it's quite a, quite a bit of information that they're collecting. And I think most people, you know, again, they're expecting it's just what types of chips you're buying, but it's actually quite a bit more information. So the grocery store chain gathers all this info, and then what do they do with it? So they take all this information and they sell insights that they derive from analysis back to the brands that sell things in supermarkets. This is extremely valuable information that the brands kind of need to understand not only what items are selling, but why. How much money is Kroger making off of something like this? Kroger is making quite a bit of money on this right now. So Kroger has its own data sciences company within its, within its corporate structure called 8451. And this company is part of a, a group of alternative profit businesses under their umbrella that they expect will make a billion dollars in profit for them per year. So it's quite a bit of money. Should we as consumers view this as harmful or could it actually be helpful for stores to understand us better so that they can give us more of what we want and less of what we don't? Kroger would say that all of the data that they're collecting is helping making your shopping experience better for you. But it comes down to a couple of things. Number one, Kroger is taking this information and sharing it with an unknown number of partners. The other thing is that I don't think most people would consider their shopping items to be sensitive information, but you can look in someone's shopping cart and see if they're expecting a child, whether they're buying kosher foods, or you could get hints about their ethnicity or other things about some, what's happening in someone's um, household. So this is more sensitive information than I think most people expect. What did Kroger say to you about all this? We reached out multiple times to Kroger and we did not get any response. Um, we reached out to Albertsons. Um, Albertsons is included in this because Kroger and Albertsons recently announced a $24.6 billion merger, which would create the, take the number one and number two supermarket chains in the United States and create this new, um, you know, the largest supermarket chain in America, which would include half of American households as customers. So Albertsons uh, gave us some information about how they use this stuff. Um, also in Kroger's privacy policy and both, both um, with Albertsons as well, they say that all the information that they share with third-party companies is anonymized and aggregated, and they take privacy very seriously. So what's your bottom line guidance for consumers? I would say that most people, when they, they have to make a decision. When you're entering into this value exchange with a supermarket, it's important to know exactly what you're giving up. And I think the less you know about exactly the extent of that data collection, it may be a less fair value that you're getting. Um, if you're a California or a Nevada or a Virginia resident, you have the ability to opt out of these programs and still use the uh, rewards program. And then if you're in California or, or Virginia, you can request a copy of your data to see exactly what information is being collected. And if you're worried about being tracked, 
Um, we talked to some experts and they said the best thing to do is not sign up for the rewards program and pay with cash. Is that what you do when you go grocery shopping? Well, I don't pay with cash, but I do not give my number to the, to, for a rewards program, although my wife and I have a disagreement about that. That's John Keegan of The Markup. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you very much. The pastry baklava is a delicacy in southern Turkey, and the earthquake that killed tens of thousands of people there and in Syria also disrupted this proud culinary tradition. Well, NPR's Daniel Esterin reports that one famous family restaurant is baking the dessert again, though the mood is hardly festive. The Chadash family are the baklava barons of Gaziantep. The city's known for the sticky sweet pastry. Burhan Chadash is in the fifth generation and says his family is one of the city's oldest makers of baklava. Not oldest one, in the top five, I'm sure about it. <laughs> his family's restaurant, Imam Chadash, ships their baklava across Turkey and as far away as Australia. They serve kebabs and local dishes too. The restaurant survived the recent catastrophic earthquake, but the owners were sleeping in their car. More than 200 people, employees with their families, slept on the restaurant floor. Some had homes destroyed. And the family stopped baking baklava for the first time in about 90 years. Chadash says it seemed like more of a luxury than a need. He says in Turkish, the restaurant transformed itself into a charity kitchen, cooking whatever leftover meat they had, preparing soup, feeding thousands of people a day, delivering children's medicines. Nine days after the quake, Chadash convinced his father to reopen the restaurant and make baklava again. Their customers were asking, and it sent a message. This dessert is the symbol of this city. He continues in Turkish. It is a dessert that is made entirely with manpower. It's not like a produced by machines or anything. I think it is a sign things are improving, things are getting better, because people can work and people can produce baklava. So I think it's a nice thing to be able to produce it again. Sixteen bakers dressed in white roll out dough onto a white marble table in a bright white room with wafting clouds of starch. It's a dreamy sight. We watch the whole delicate process, layering a tray with buttery ghee from the neighboring city Orfa, which some believe was the birthplace of the biblical patriarch Abraham. Then some Turkish kaimak cream and homegrown emerald pistachios before slicing the tray into portions. It looks easy, but the hardest part. So baklava is back, but things aren't the same. Here in the restaurant, nearly all the customers are aid workers or civil engineers inspecting damage. At one table, we meet two Turkish car repair shop owners who flew in from Istanbul to volunteer. Erkan Şenel says it's been a grim experience. My friend here maybe carried out over 20 bodies out of the rubble. Şenel said they hadn't showered in a week and finally took a break to come to this famous restaurant for a bite. But then they couldn't stomach it. I can't tell you how hard it is to try to eat something after what we've seen in the earthquake zones. We know the earthquake victims are fellow citizens are in such pain. It's hard for us to eat anything. We ordered food. We weren't able to eat it. We ordered this baklava. I just took a bite and I stopped. He says he could go on forever praising the baklava at Imam Chadash, but he just didn't feel like this was the right time. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Gaziantep, Turkey. This is NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu MBA.